Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your precious people, and we thank you for Maurice. We thank you for his love for you. We thank you for his faithfulness, Lord, to the ministry, to the church here. We pray that you would draw yourself near to him now, and we pray you grant him complete healing. I pray that the doctors and the nurses that are working in this case, on his case in Bronson, will come to the right conclusions and cures. And we would pray that you would just allow him to sense your nearness. He needs strength. We pray you give it to him in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, we're continuing our study of this doctrine of hell, and we're coming to the final couple of weeks of the study. And we are going to discuss an important issue tonight. That's the adjective eternal as it relates to hell. And I think one of the key critical words that you have to look at is the word eternal. And you have to ask yourself simply this question, why would God put that there in front of a word like hell or fire or something of that nature? And the word eternal is used 65 times in the New Testament, and it's used to qualify multiple nouns that are clearly connected to this subject of hell. For example, it's used, first of all, the word eternal is used to describe eternal fire. Eternal fire. So let's look at some references there, the ones that I have in your notes. Let's go to Matthew 18. We'll see it for yourself. And you have to look at this and say, well, that is what it says in Matthew chapter 18. And you'll notice in verse 8, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the, and here it is, eternal fire. So the noun fire is qualified by the adjective eternal. Now let's go to chapter 25 and verse 41. Chapter 25 and verse 41. And you'll notice in chapter 25 and verse 41, then he will also say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. So there, obviously, again, there's a place that's identified by the Lord Jesus Christ himself as being a place of eternal fire. Then if you go to Jude, the next to the last book of the New Testament, and you go to verse 7 of that book of Jude, keep your finger here in Matthew because we're coming back to that. In Jude, and you'll notice in verse 7, we read, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So now you have the idea of the punishment of eternal fire. So you have the adjective eternal describing a place of fire. Then secondly, it describes eternal punishment. Now you have punishment mentioned there, but it doesn't necessarily specifically qualify in Jude punishment. But if you go back to Matthew 25, Matthew 25 and verse 46, you have two eternals used in this one verse. In Matthew 25, 46, we read, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So what we have here is we have a qualification of this place that burns with fire, and we have a qualification of this place that is called a place of punishment. It's qualified in the scriptures by the adjective eternal. Now, the third way that the word eternal is used is it's used to describe 
eternal sin that makes forgiveness impossible. I'd like you to go to Mark 3. Mark 3 and verse 29. We read, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Now, if we're talking about an eternal sin, we're talking about a sin that cannot be forgiven. I mean, there's nothing you can do to have that sin forgiven because the sin is there eternally, forever, which would be another way to understand that. Now, let me just explain that to you concerning what the eternal sin is. Obviously, if you're looking at your text in Mark chapter 3 and verse 29, it's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. In every different dispensation... There is a sin, if you commit it, it will not be forgiven in every dispensation. For example, let's go back to the Garden of Eden and the book of Genesis. And God said, you can eat of any tree that you want in this garden. However, if you eat of that one tree, now there's something you don't want to do. If you eat of that tree, it's not going to be forgiven you. You're going to get the death penalty. And he warned them, well, you know the story. They went ahead, they ate of the tree, and they got the death penalty. We have the death penalty because they got the death penalty because we're all sinners in there. So we could say the sin that God wouldn't forgive in the Garden of Eden would be you don't eat of that tree. If you eat of that tree, I'm not going to just overlook it and forgive it. All right, so then when you go on to the time of Noah, Noah is constructing an ark, and he's telling people that the flood is coming. He was a preacher of righteousness for 120 years. And so if you didn't believe that, and you didn't go into that ark, you weren't going to be forgiven. You were going to be eternally destroyed. And they were. Only eight souls were saved that went into that ark. And so at the time that Noah's building that ark, that's the one thing you don't want to do. Disregard the fact that there's a flood coming of judgment, and you don't want to miss out on that ark. All right, now when you go into the nation Israel, and God is directing the nation Israel, he comes to the nation Israel and he said, you need to put blood on that doorpost. And if you don't put blood on that doorpost, I'm not going to overlook it, I'm not going to forgive it. In fact, if you don't put blood on that doorpost, the firstborn's going to die. So during that particular dispensation, when God's working with the nation Israel, that would be what we would say is the unpardonable sin. When the Lord Jesus Christ was specifically, personally here on earth, doing miracles as God, by the power of God, by the power of the Spirit of God, the thing that would be unforgivable would be to say he's satanic. He's doing that by the power of Satan, by the power of demons. That is not something you want to do when Jesus Christ is physically here on earth. In fact, he says in this very text of Mark, all sins can be forgiven you, except you do this. You start attacking me and saying that I'm satanic and demonic, it will not be forgiven you. Now we get into the church age. Christ has died on the cross. What is the one sin that will never be forgiven anyone in this age? Not believe in Jesus Christ. Any person who will not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ is not going to be forgiven. The sin is not going to be overlooked. And that person is going to go what we're studying into this place of eternal fire. So we would say the unpardonable sin for the grace age, for the church age, is not believe in Jesus Christ. Now the rapture of the church takes place and you get into the tribulation period. And you have an antichrist. And in that tribulation period, there is an unpardonable sin. You better not take the mark of the beast. 
If you take the mark of the beast, which is either his name or his number, you're destined for hell. It's not going to be overlooked. It's not going to be forgiven. The scriptures are very clear in Revelation on that point, that that is the unpardonable sin in the tribulation to take the mark of the beast. So what I'm saying is, in every single dispensation of time, God has a specific type of sin that will guarantee one will end up in eternal fire. And the particular sin that he's referring to here, which is the eternal sin, which would guarantee it, was when he was physically, personally here on earth, telling people he's God, proving he's God by miracles that he was doing. And they were to say he's satanic, doing that by the power of Satan. Christ said, that's it. You're done. You end up burning forever in fire. That's what the eternal sin was. Now, a fourth way that this word is used, it's used to describe eternal dwellings. I'd like you to go to Luke 16, 9. Luke 16, 9. In Luke chapter 16 and verse 9, the Lord Jesus says in Luke 16, 9, I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now, we could build a case that there are places, based on that statement, there are places where people go forever, and they're going to live forever. We also can build on the previous adjectival constructions that we've looked at, we could also determine there's a place where people can go that has eternal fire, there's a place where people can go that has eternal punishment, there is a sin that people can commit in every dispensation that would guarantee it's an eternal sin that would never be forgiven. So we could say if a person would not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and refuse to trust him as Savior, they're going to go to this eternal dwelling place that will be an eternal place of fire. Now that brings us to the fifth way the word is used. It's used to describe eternal destruction. I want to go to 2 Thessalonians 1, if you would please, 2 Thessalonians 1. I'm going to focus in on verse 9, but let's start on verse 7. And to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. Now there's the qualifying adjective. It's not just destruction, eternal destruction, away from the presence of God and from the glory of his power. So from that statement, destruction, by the way, is not annihilation. Don't confuse that point. Destruction is not annihilation. Destruction would indicate that they're in a place where they're destroyed, experiencing the retribution and fire of God forever. And that's what that place is, and that's what that statement really concludes. Now, the sixth way that this word eternal is used, it's used to refer to eternal judgment. And I'd like you to go to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, and in verse 2, and by the way, well, let's just read verse 2, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Now, I want to just talk about that for a minute because obviously one of the basic doctrinal things that were taught early on as believers, because I want you to notice verse 1, therefore leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ. 
So you're talking about the elementary basic things that you're taught. One of the basic things that you're taught from the beginning of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is you're taught about eternal judgment. That's one of the things. I mean, as a person who comes to faith in the Lord, you realize there's a place where I'm going to go that's a place in eternity. And I'm going to face an eternal judgment. And that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is saying there. And he's basically saying this is a very basic doctrine. So someone who is denying the fact of judgment or eternal judgment or eternal fire or eternal punishment, they are literally denying something that's very, very basic at the infant stages of one's faith. And then finally, the word eternal... Olam in the Old Testament, but it's the same word Ionas in the New Testament, describes eternal burning. And I'd like you to go to Isaiah 33 for that one. Isaiah 33 and verse 14. Isaiah 33, verse 14. And the Septuagint actually reads eternal burning. But we read in verse 14, Sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can live with a consuming fire? Who among us can live with continual burning? That's eternal burning in the Septuagint. It's the same construction that we're looking at for eternal fire, eternal punishment, and the other things. So from the uses of this word eternal, we conclude that this adjective is used in connection with the subject of hell. Eternal fire, eternal punishment, eternal judgment, eternal burning. I mean, we're not the ones that are making this up. This is what the scriptures are revealing to us. Now, the question that needs to be answered is this. Why does God use the word eternal in connection to hell, and what does that word actually mean? Why didn't God leave the word out? Why did he have to include the word eternal? Ask yourself that question. Why didn't he just say, and those who aren't believers will go to fire or punishment or destruction or judgment. Why did he qualify each of those nouns that he uses there with that adjective eternal? Well, the actual word eternal, ionos, is a word that refers to space of time without end. That's what it really means. It's a space of time without end. Actually, the word refers to space of time without beginning or end. Joseph there adds it means something that will never cease. When he uses the adjective eternal, he's talking about something that will always be in existence. Art and Gindrich in their lexicon say the word emphasizes something without end. I'm not misreading this. These are Greek scholars that have done a lot of research on this stuff. Moulton and Milligan, two esteemed grammarians who trace New Testament Greek words in secular Greek, say in general the word depicts that of which the end time horizon is not in view. Plato, in his use of this word in Greek, the word eternal refers to that which is timeless. So we have to say, why would God select this word and he uses it in Hebrew, olam, but he also, in the Septuagint, they use the word ionas. Why does he specifically select a word that means something that's never going to end and then connect that to hell? Connect it to fire. Connect it to judgment, punishment. Why would he do that? Because he wants to have people realize if you end up in this place, you're going to a place that will never end. What this states is that hell is not a temporal place of punishment. It's an eternal place of punishment, and it's not going to end. 
So if a person actually does not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and ends up in hell, every human needs to understand you're going to be there forever. You're going to be there forever. You're not going to get out of that, and it's not going to change. It is qualified too many times in the scriptures as being an eternal place. What that means is that one is being punished in a place of burning fire forever. One is being punished in a place of judgment and destruction forever, and it's never going to end. One in this place is in that place forever, which is why the Bible teaches people now is the accepted time to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. That's the only unpardonable sin in this church age, not believe on Jesus Christ. If a person refuses to believe on Jesus Christ and wants to rely on himself or herself or works or religion or whatever, they're going to go to this place of eternal fire and that fire is never going to end and that punishment's never going to end. That's qualified by that word adjective eternal. Now that brings us to the subject of purgatory. It's a false teaching of purgatory. Many Roman Catholics and Anglicans and Eastern Orthodox churches believe in a third alternative place where souls of the dead go. They call it purgatory. They've come up with this idea other than going just directly to heaven to be with the Lord or hell to burn in fire. They've invented a place called purgatory. The false teaching of purgatory is a Catholic doctrine that was introduced and developed at the Catholic Council of Florence in AD 1430, and then it was really kind of more formalized at the Council of Trent in AD 1545 to 1563. Now, according to the Catholics, purgatory is a period of temporal punishment for sins after death and before heaven. So you could get a chance that if you hadn't trusted the Lord Jesus Christ and you died, you might have a chance to still get to heaven. I mean, purgatory is a place of cleansing and purification and sanctification before one would go to heaven. And the purpose of this supposed make-believe place is to provide a place after the soul leaves the body where sins that could send one to hell can be cleansed. Now, there's no place in the Bible where this is taught. We've already gone through all the passages of Scripture that deal with the truth on this. There's no place in the Scriptures where this thing has been taught. The Council of Trent made this declaration, and they said this is infallible, by the way, when they taught this, because here's what they said. If anyone says that after the reception of the grace of justification, the guilt is so remitted and the debt of eternal punishment so blotted out to every repentant sinner that no debt of temporal punishment remains to be discharged either in this world or in purgatory before the gates of heaven can be opened, let him be anathema. What a bunch of baloney. Let people who believe that if you can settle your eternal state here in this life by believing in Jesus Christ, if people believe that, let them be accursed. That's what anathema means. That's basically what they're saying there, which Christ is the only way to settle the case before we leave our body. Believe in him and be saved. Now, there are five different concepts that Catholics have concerning purgatory, and I'm not going to spend a lifetime studying Catholicism and their goofy theology, but I will highlight the different aspects of it. Some say purgatory is like a purification place that one goes to before they enter heaven. By the way, they're just making this up. 
There's no scriptural evidence for any of this, and the Bible verses they use, we won't get to tonight probably, but the Bible verses they use aren't talking about that. Purgatory, secondly, is a place that involves some kind of pain and suffering. Purgatory is a place where those may be helped by the prayers support. Here we go. Here we go. Now money is in this. By the prayers and support and devotion of those living on earth. This is a racket. And I'm going to point that out as we go through this. Fourthly, purgatory is an actual place, which it isn't. Purgatory is a place where souls are for a certain temporal amount of time. Now, the Catholics base their view on primarily four main sources, and the first source is the apocryphal book of 2 Maccabees. Now, the apocryphal books are part of the Catholic Bible. And by the way, Tim is teaching bibliology in adult Sunday school right now, and he will get to a point where he covers all of this much more in depth than what we're going to do here in this overview tonight. So I would encourage you to get into his doctrine class because he goes through this very stuff in his doctrine class. But the apocryphal books were not even considered to be inspired books that belonged in the Bible until the Council of Trent in AD 1546, And this idea of the place of purgatory existing came out of one of those apocryphal books, 2 Maccabees 12, 39-46, where the Jews prayed that the sins of those who died would be forgiven them. And actually, out of this, they've developed the idea of you praying for the dead, and you can pay money to the church, and you can get people together, and they can somehow manipulate God to let them get out of this place and go to heaven if you do that. So they made up this idea that there's this place beyond the grave. Now, the apocryphal books were a bunch of books that weren't really considered to be inspired books of God And they were not taken seriously until about the mid-1500s when only by a fraction vote they were even received by Catholics because most of the Catholics, a lot of the Catholics didn't even accept them. But there were 15 books, 15 books that are identified as apocryphal books. You have the Wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiasticus, Tobit, Judith, 1st and 2nd Esdras, uh, 1st and 2nd Maccabees, you have Baruch, you have Letter of Jeremiah, Additions to Esther, Prayer of Azariah, Susanna, Bell and the Dragon, the Prayer of Manasseh. There was no Hebrew Old Testament Bible that ever contained these books. They were never quoted by any of the New Testament writers. The original Greek Septuagint that translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek did not contain apocryphal books. In fact, none of the apocryphal books are accurate to doctrine, history, or even geography. There are crazy stories. Crazy stories in those apocryphal books that, frankly, are bizarre. For example, in the book, Bell and the Dragon, the pagan priest of Bell tried to deceive Daniel by having him go through a trap door in order that he would eat the food offered to Bell. Just crazy stuff. I mean, crazy stuff. Well, to base their view that there's purgatory after death, one of the things that they refer to is this text here in 2 Maccabees chapter 12, verses 39 to 42, and here's the text. I've actually quoted it for you. On the following day, since the task had now become urgent, Judas and his companions went to gather up the bodies of the fallen and bury them with their kindred in their ancestral tombs. 
But under the tunic of each of the dead, they found amulets sacred to the idol of Jemnia, which the law forbids the Jews to wear. So it was clear to all that this was why these men had fallen. They all therefore praised the ways of the Lord, the just judge who brings to light the things that are hidden. Turning to supplication, they prayed that the sinful deed might be fully blotted out. The noble Judas exhorted the people to keep themselves free from sin, for they had seen with their own eyes what happened because of the sin of those who had fallen. He then took up a collection. Here we go. He took up a collection among all his soldiers, amounting to 2,000 silver drachmas, which he sent to Jerusalem to provide as an expiatory sacrifice. In doing this, he acted in a very excellent and noble way, inasmuch as he had the resurrection in mind, for if he were not expecting the fallen to rise again, it would have been superfluous and foolish for him to pray for the dead. But if he did this with a view to the splendid reward that awaits those who had gone to rest in godliness, it was a holy and pious thought. Thus he made atonement for the dead that they might be absolved from their sin. From those verses in Second Maccabees, the Catholics came to three conclusions. Number one, one who's a sinner who dies goes to purgatory, a place where they can eventually be pardoned. Number two, there's value to praying for the dead people. And number three, there's value to give offerings to the church in order to make atonement for sinners who've died. So they take this passage of scripture that isn't even in the scriptures, it's not inspired by God, they take this from the apocryphal writings, and then they build their case of purgatory out of that. Now, the rules that were actually followed to determine whether or not a book was inspired by God back in this time, and Mr. Kelly will do a much more thorough job than I will, but I'll expose you to the five main rules. First of all, they would ask the question, is this book written by a man of God? This is what the church used as a basis for determining which books actually belong in the Bible. Was this book written by a man of God, a known prophet, a known apostle? I mean, that was number one criteria, because God gave prophets and apostles the ability to speak and write inspired scripture. Secondly, does the book written have an authoritative divine ring to it, such as it calls itself the word of God, or this is what the Lord says, or this is what God has revealed? Because if in fact it is from the word of God or from God, it will identify itself as being a writing that's from God. Thirdly, does the book tell the consistent truth about God? Does the book tell a consistent truth about the world, Israel, and men? Since God can't lie, all truth has to have a truth symmetry to it. Every subject will tell the truth about God on every topic. Every subject will have a symmetry when it comes to prophecy. Does the book tell the truth about it? Fourthly, does the book written have the power to transform minds and hearts? A true inspired book of God has the power to dynamically save, develop, edify, and educate the people of God. It has power in it. It's living and active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. That's what the Bible claims. It's able to cut open the hearts of men, and it has done that with us. So we know that's true. And finally, was the book written accepted as being inspired by God by those who were there, who lived closest to the actual time the book was written? None of the apocryphal books fit this criterion. So to build a doctrine such as purgatory that you've 
developed, and this primarily, 2 Maccabees, was the big passage they used. And then they find a few verses we'll go through, Lord willing, next Wednesday night to try to prove the point. But this was their big text from the Apocrypha that they used to base purgatory and praying for the dead and taking collections and getting people to contribute to get this person out of judgment into heaven is folly. It's fictitious folly. It does not square with anything the Bible teaches. The Bible's clear on this point. You decide what you're going to do with the Lord Jesus Christ here and now. Once you leave the body, the game is over. That's it. That's what the Bible teaches. You are either present with the Lord when you leave the body, or you're going to this eternal place of fire. Well, our time is long gone tonight. We have a great day of worship planned for you on Sunday. We'll be in Colossians, first couple of verses of Colossians Sunday morning, then Sunday night we have our Christmas program, and we're going to be looking at an angle, thank God he wasn't home for Christmas. That's the angle we're going to look at what Christ did on Sunday night. It'll be a great night of singing carols. It'll be great. So hope to see you. Drive careful. Good night. The Lord bless you.